Yeah, because I remember them having those at Crestwood as well. Like, that's the junior high I went to, and they had boys and girls entrances. But I would imagine that they all did. But then how are you supposed to know? Were there other signs that they took down? Maybe. We should, we should find out. Thank you everybody for coming. Uh, so I'm Chris Chang and Phillips, Edmonton's historian laureate, and you are actually on an episode of Let's Find Out right now, uh, which is a local history podcast where people give me questions about uh, Edmonton's history, and then we find out the answers together. Um, so the Ritchie Community League asked me to sort of combine that project with something I used to do, which was a shareable neighborhood. Uh, we did walks and workshops around Old Strathcona, um, and the idea was that people in the neighborhood know a heck of a lot about the place that they live, and wouldn't it be nice if they could share that? Um, so I have taken questions about Richie, and we're gonna answer them through the walk today. Um, we're gonna stop at a couple places, and uh, I'm gonna give you some answers. I also wanted just to acknowledge that we are, of course, on Treaty 6 land today. Um, homeland of the Cree, Blackfoot, Dene, Soto, Nakota Sioux, and later the Métis and Settler peoples. Um, and we are pretty close to uh, what used to be the Papas Chase Cree Reserve land. And boy, there's a lot of interesting history about that. Uh, that if anybody has time, I have some cool maps to show you about that area too. Basically, Frank Oliver was a huge jerk. Uh, <laughs> just uh, a little bit of, about uh, me too. I am not the chief knower of things in the city. I am sort of the, the chief cheerleader for people who have exciting questions about local history. So I like to model curiosity and I like to do research, but you may well know more about the neighborhood than I do. What I'm gonna show you is my research process, some of the fun things that I found, I'm gonna introduce you to some cool places, um, but you may well know more about them. So uh, there will be some times when I'll let you know like, okay, so, now would be a great time to share stories if you have some stories about the neighborhood. So I'll, uh, I'll let you know kind of what the times are for that. Uh, does anybody have any questions before we start walking to our first spot? How okay. did the name Ritchie and the district get defined? Uh, so the neighborhood of Ritchie, as I understand it, was named after Robert Ritchie. Um, so he was a mayor of Strathcona um, back when Strathcona was its own city. Uh, he ran the Ritchie Mill, which you can still see along Saskatchewan Drive. Uh, he was also a school board trustee, and um, the neighborhood sort of grew up around the time that the Calgary-Edmonton railway line came in and the Edmonton-Yukon and Pacific railway line. This neighborhood became part of Edmonton in 1912 when Strathcona and Edmonton amalgamated. Great question. And I did not know all of that before I started this research project. <laughs> okay, so we're going to walk to Richie's school for our first question and answer. We walked over to the Ritchie Schoolyard near 97th Street and 74th Ave. And Sam, since you recorded everything that listeners will be hearing on this episode, I feel like this would be a good time to introduce you to listeners. Uh, I'm Sam Power. Um, I uh, used to be the news director at CJSR, the news editor at View Weekly. Um, and then I did a little thing uh, and went and got my master's in journalism at Carleton. And I'm really glad to be back here um, at Edmonton um, working on community news and radio. Uh, yeah, glad to be working with you, Sam. I'm really excited. And now we are at the point in the walk where we reached the Ritchie Schoolyard. So Morgana was curious to know 
Some of the stories of the Ritchie School here, this beautiful historic school that was built in 1913. And specifically, she was also curious how it could be that a beautiful historic building like this um, could end up be uh, sort of slated for likely demolition. Um, do you want to explain why you were curious about this, Morgana? Um, I guess Edmonton has a long history of um, sort of tearing down historical buildings just because it's much cheaper to build new. I guess we have a long history of wanting shiny new things and not really preserving what we already have. So I was just curious uh, about this really iconic building in our neighborhood that is kind of one of a kind. Why there's not more of an effort on the part of the province and the city to preserve that like for future generations because it's been here 104 years. So yeah, that was sort of why I was curious. Excellent. Thanks, Morgana. Everybody round of applause for Morgana. Okay, so often the first place that I go to try to answer a question um, is the City of Edmonton archives um, and also the provincial archives. Those are great sources for stories here in Edmonton. Um, and one amazing thing that I found when I went to the City of Edmonton archives and asked for files on Ritchie School um, was this little booklet that students made for the 50th anniversary of the school. Has anyone seen this history of Ritchie School? It's really cute. Um, the students um, back in 1963 wrote out a history of the school as they knew it in the neighborhood, but they also made these amazing illustrations. So this is one of my favorites. Um, it's this little illustration of the school sort of tilted like the Leaning Tower of Pisa, and it says, the school was always sinking. <laughs> The school song then was, give a cheer, give a cheer, for our school is sinking again. It don't rhyme, but nobody's perfect. <laughs> There's also a map that I found. This doesn't seem to be from 1963. This be seems to be from 1913. Um, that shows Ritchie School amidst what was happening in the neighborhood. And my favorite thing that it shows is what they call Christian's Cabbage Patch. So does anybody know what that story is? Um, so there was a, a lot of farmer fields around here and there was a man named Mr. Christensen apparently who had uh, a farm in the area with what they wrote in this book was around a hundred thousand cabbages growing in the field and uh, he told students that if as they were walking to school if they wanted to pick a cabbage they were welcome to um, they just had to make sure that they cleaned up after themselves and didn't waste so the booklet explains that sometimes Mr. Christensen would come to the school and chide students for doing exactly that um, but I thought that was funny um, I also loved this picture, fire drills, look who's talking, there's a big shouting teacher. This is one that I really like because it'll tie into something else that we're going to look at today. I thought it was another gainer's fire. <laughs> so it's a teacher, or maybe a student, shouting with a, a pail of water running towards the home ec room. Um, and the gainer's meatpacking plant was well known for regularly setting on fire in a catastrophic way. So I thought this was pretty cute, they tied that in. There's a picture here of one of Richie's first classes from 1913. Um, because of the problems with the school sinking, they weren't able to move in right away. The basement had to be jacked up three times. Um, but that was one of the first classes that actually did make it in the doors. These are some snippets of the music room and the drama room back in 1963. Some little photographs. Um, this was awards day back in 1963. So over the years, the school um, was expanded. Um, 
as the, the needs of the students grew. Um, but it was, at a certain stage, uh, not kept up as well as it could have been. This is an article from 1971 uh, discussing uh, a well-known complaint in the neighborhood of the school being declared inadequate uh, for students' needs at that time. It says, parents of Ritchie attending, parents of children attending Ritchie Elementary Junior High School feel the building should be torn down and replaced or at least given substantial renovations. These photographs demonstrate why. A group of children work out in a gymnasium top, which is a basement room with heating pipes and ducts across the ceiling. Principal Bill Welder sits on a table that the school bought for $5 at an auction sale. <laughs> and then it's also got a picture of a student washing some paintbrushes in the janitor's sink. That doesn't seem so bad to me, but I guess they thought that was a big, uh, an illustration of the school being kind of inadequate for the needs of the neighborhood. So this is a, a, a picture of, of kind of what happened over time, which is that the main school building ended up not being used for teaching anymore. Um, the additions ended up being the focus of, of where students were being taught, and then it became kind of a, a storage area for a while. It was, um, it was hosting the Terra Center uh, for uh, young moms. Um, and then by the 70s, the school board was planning on demolishing it, but basically lacked the funds to tear it down. Um, there's an article here from 1986 that I found um, from the Edmonton Journal that quotes somebody from Alberta Culture saying that there's not much chance of this building at that point even getting provincial historic designation to try to preserve it because it lacked architectural integrity, basically because they'd made so many modifications to it. Um, so that was unfortunate. Um, and then by 2008, um, the school was closed as an EPSB school. Um, now there is Ecole Joseph Moreau, uh, which is run by the Conseil... Ah, I can't remember. Conseil Scolaire saint Nord, I think, the Francophone School Board. Um, so originally the EPSB was leasing this uh, school to them. In 2016, they bought it. Um, so now it, this building is actually owned by the, that Francophone School Board. Um, and that brings us up to date with um, where the school is at. Um, the, the school board does plan on, um, they, they, at least informally, they haven't filed anything yet. They, they do plan on demolishing this building um, because they really feel like they deserve a new school. Um, and oh, I can't find the document. I found a great article just sort of explaining that there isn't much of, of value that they see in the old school at this point. Um, there's asbestos inside. The main value, I think, of the old building is that the boiler is still in there. Um, so they, from what I read in the article, they are hoping to preserve some uh, features or like pieces of the old building in the new school that will exist on this site. And to tell us more about how the process works for buildings that we recognize as historic, sort of ending up in this place where they're um, likely to probably to be torn down. Uh, we have Robert Geldart, who's a senior heritage planner for the city of Edmonton. The building, as I understand it, it is on the inventory of historic resources for the city of Edmonton. Is that right? That is correct, yes. Okay, so what would happen next if the, that school board were to apply for demolition? What's the next step? Okay, first of all, you have to understand that we have not received the application yet to demolish. But you have heard in the community that they do wish to build a new school. The idea is building a new school on the other side of this building and while they operate the school 
during that time. And then after the school is completed, the risk is to demolish. I have offered financial incentives to restore the school. The school is restorable. Um, it is in bad shape, there's no doubt about it. I won't deny that. And it would take a lot of money to do so, to restore it. But the process with the city is that we do want to encourage them to designate it and to protect it. Uh, it, uh, it is one of a few 1913 schools that were built around that time. Other schools exist, like Highlands, Oliver. All those schools were built around the same time. And uh, it was a boom period at that time, before the First World War. And again, just kind of like now, lots of population, lots of excitement going on and speculation at that time. So schools were needed. They had an architect by the name of George Turner, who was an architect retained by the school board. And he designed a lot of these schools that have this kind of collegiate Gothic style. Uh, we see a lot of the buildings that look like this on campus at U of A. And uh, it's a very beautiful style. We all, we all love it. Um, however, things have changed and how we operate in schools have changed. We understand that. Um, if they choose to not accept the city incentives, um, then we will have to inform city council their intent to demolish. And um, that is a time for city council to let us know whether they have any issues with that. And they could very well let us know that they would like to perhaps get a, re a report that tells them that they could designate the building against the owner's wishes. And we can do that. However, you have the Alberta Historic Resources Act. And the act requires that the city must compensate. And that is the compensation for a lack of economic value. And that could be huge. The process that we do go through is rigorous. We do try to do our best to advocate for the school and protect it. Uh, however, it has its challenges. And um, as you pointed out earlier, the one who asked the question, uh, you said the city is known for its boom and bust cycles. And Edmonton had those kinds of cycles which is not good for heritage at all. The boom bust cycles that come, the boom is on, let's build new and let's get rid of the old. And it has happened time and time again here in Edmonton. Uh, unlike Winnipeg, Winnipeg didn't have those kind of cycles. And as a result, they have a very large historic district, a warehouse district. And they're pretty much intact. Uh, we have a few intact areas in the city. A few schools that have been kept over the years. So we do have a few pieces of Edmonton that we have retained, like White Avenue, and I'm very proud of those that we do have in the city that we do keep. And, um, but I wish we could do more. However, it's, you know, we, uh, we, are, we do have constraints, and uh, the boom bus cycle is part of it. Do you mind if I ask a question? Yeah, go ahead. What the heck is the difference between historic designation and being on the inventory of historic resources. <laughs> okay, the inventory is a list of heritage buildings, or historic resources. So there can be more than just a building. There can be bridges, there can be artifacts, there can be other things, uh, or other structures. But primarily they're, they're, they're buildings, commercial and residential. We have over 900 on the list in the city of Edmonton right now. 
And that means they're eligible for designation. So once you're designated, you go on the register of historic resources. And the register means that they're listed and protected and designated. So we now have in the city of Edmonton 143 historic resources that are designated and protected. And uh, when I first arrived here in Edmonton in the year 2000, there were only 22 buildings. So we've come a long way since 2000. Uh, the last 17 years has been a, we've seen a big shift in protecting more of our historic resources. And uh, there's more evidence of it in the city now. So I'm very proud of the fact that we have 143. At this point, we packed up our things to head to the next stop. And people started debating when exactly Edmonton schools stopped using separate boys and girls entrances like Richie's. Yeah, because I remember them having those at Crestwood as well, like that's the junior high I went to, and they had boys and girls entrances. But I would imagine that they all did. But how are you supposed to know? Were there other signs that they took down? Maybe. We should, we should find out. If Hazeldean had gendered entrances? Yeah. We walked a few streets over, past the fancy new coffee shop and brewery in Ritchie, to a grassy field beside a long stretch of condo complexes. Everybody laid down a blanket on the grass or took a seat in a park bench, and we settled in to talk about the second question on our walk. Okay, so the next question I, I, I got that I thought was pretty interesting um, was from Carol Kallenberg, who... Carol, you're not here today, right? Okay, she told me she didn't think she was up for the whole walk, so I will entertain her by answering the question, then giving her the podcast after. Um, Carol has lived in the neighborhood since the early 60s and was curious, does anyone else remember the time the cattle escaped from the Gainers meatpacking plant? <laughs> so I thought it'd be fun to talk about the, the plant itself kind of hanging on that question. Um, so the Gainers meatpacking plant, um, again, I started asking um, at archives, I started at the provincial archives to see if they had anything on it. Um, surprisingly, they couldn't find any records referring to a cattle escape. They did have records on like a hog escape from a different plant, but they didn't have anything specific on, on gainers, which was too bad. Um, so I went to the City of Edmonton archives to ask if any of you remembered that, and uh, I could not find like any newspaper articles that reference this. I looked through not only like the Ritchie files and the gainer files, but also they have a file on cattle. And um, there wasn't anything in there. Um, in case anybody's curious what the Gainers meatpacking plant looked like, um, this is a little photograph of it. Um, and I also found um, one of the aerial photographs of this area that just shows you how big this plant was. So we're here in this park. That's how big the plant was. And Yes, the, whenever I mention the plant to people, smell, yeah, is the first thing that people mention. Um, it, it played a huge role in local employment, pollution in the creek, um, and also the local food industry. Um, I snapped this picture from the Glenbow archives of what it looked like inside. And you can see one of their fleets of delivery trucks, um, Gainers Superior Wieners, I guess we're pretty famous in the city. and. My favorite thing that I learned about Gainers while I was trying to dig into this question was the expression, that person has got more guts than Gainers. <laughs> um, that was pretty vivid. Um, the plant did eventually close in 1979. Um, 
there was a big debacle with Peter Pocklington owning the site and then trying to convert it into housing and people were mad about that. They thought it'd be too much density in the area and other people really wanted it to happen. Um, so now of course the site is turned into housing, which, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I can't find any plaques about the Gainer's history in this area. There doesn't seem to be anything on the site that mentions that it had this exquisitely long history. Some of the stories of Edmonton's um, meatpacking plants are captured in a project called Packing Town. Um, so Catherine C. Cole um, did many, many oral history interviews about uh, meatpacking plants at Edmonton. Um, she mainly focused on the north side of Edmonton. So I also asked her if she had any records about a particular individual cattle escape uh, on, on the site. And she actually couldn't find anything, which I was quite surprised about. So we're going to put a pin in that for now. Um, but I just wanted to show you all the places I looked through to f try to find an answer to Carol's question. Um, okay, so we're going to walk now to our third spot, um, our third and final question and location. Sound good? Okay. I had a big laminated map to show how big the Gainers plant was, and while we packed up our blankets, some people gathered around the map to look for their own houses. Oh, here's Four Corners, yeah. That's crazy. Four Corners looks so yeah. Compared to this meatpacking plant, like, that's yeah. massive. Yeah, the interest. Oh, I might not go far. Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah, me neither. I had no idea. There should be a plaque here. It's so interesting. That, it's so interesting that they build all this stuff like on what is now the most valuable like. <laughs> Yeah. Property, well, you know, but they were probably like, there because they needed a they water source, yeah, exactly. right? Yeah. And they just dumped stuff in there. They the needed water. a place for the These cow poo to go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> were not desirable. Yeah, I bet. But there was an old yeah. rail line that came in through. We walked a few blocks back south to a little bend in the road just above Mill Creek Ravine. We gathered on the grass across the street from a row of houses and tall leafy trees. So, our last question was also from Carol Kallenberg, who again, sadly couldn't come on the walk today. But she asked such a specific question that I couldn't not try to find out the answer, which was, when were the street trees on 75th Avenue, 93rd Street planted? Um, I, I love that kind of hyper-focus. Um, so I, I had to call Carol and see if she meant these trees or those trees. And it turns out she was referring to these big boulevard trees behind us, the ones with the beautiful vase shape. So um, back in the shareable neighborhood days, I, I led a walk on um, street trees in, in Edmonton uh, called Meet the Trees. So I, I am friends with this species of tree. Um, these are American elms. Um, so they're very common in Edmonton. Um, and I found um, some stats on just how common they are from the city of Edmonton's urban forest management plan. American elms actually make up 19% of the street trees in Edmonton. And the, the, another 25% is a green ash, which is slightly farther down. Um, so um, what, we're going to walk across the street in a little bit, and I'll show you kind of what the leaf looks like for elm. They're very easy to tell because really there are two super common type of big vase-shaped trees, and one of them has one type of leaf. The, the American um, elms have, like, sort of these lines across the leaf, and you'll notice that the lines are slightly mismatched on each side, and the green ash have more of a, a classic, like, swoop swoop, um, green little leaf <laughs> shape. Um, interestingly, if you look at the overall tree cover in Edmonton, though, um, aspens make up 61% of the trees, including the river valley, um, and poplars make up another 19%. So the number of um, American elms and green ash trees is much smaller when you include all the trees that weren't planted on streets. 
Um, so uh, I did some um, friend asking basically, like who would be the best people in the city of Edmonton to ask? Um, and the wonderful Catherine Ivany, our city archivist, and uh, she works at the City of Edmonton Archives, um, she turned me on to uh, somebody who works in the uh, forestry department for the city of Edmonton, and you would not believe what his name is. It was Crispin Wood. <laughs> um, so they, I asked them if they had any records of the street tree planting on this block, and he said they don't actually. Um, past a certain point in time, they don't have records. Um, what he was able to say was that they were probably built around the same time as the neighborhood. Um, and he said that, um, he gave me some facts for street tree planting um, back in the days when they didn't have much stuff. Um, so I just got some pictures of other tree plantings in Edmonton. This is not this street. Um, just so you can see what it looks like. Um, so uh, trees today, when the city of Edmonton plants them, um, they're about five to six years old and they usually plant them with the, the root ball and all the dirt around it, right? With the big piece of burlap around it. A burlap and ball, I think that's what they call it. Um, another source that I tried to look was aerial photographs. Um, so if you go to the City of Edmonton Archives, they have wonderful trove of aerial photographs of the city. So this is one from 1949. Whoa, hang on. Esther, would you actually mind helping me? Absolutely. Thank you. So this is Edmonton, 1949, in the rough Ritchie area. Um, so it's pretty easy to tell this alley kind of area here, which wasn't quite as well defined. And this is the area we're looking at. So it's kind of hard to see if you're at the back, but please trust me, there are no trees in that area as of 1949. Okay. So then we skip a little bit farther ahead in time. And this was unfortunately the worst scanned copy I got. <laughs> um, so this is 1954. You guys actually at your community league have a slightly better version of this. Would you mind holding yeah, this one too? Cool. Um, so it looks completely black on this version of it, but this is, hang on. This is where we are, and on other better versions of this picture, you can see there are still no trees in that area on the boulevard type area, but... Oh, not that one. Uh, Scott, do you have the other map? Yeah. By 1969, the street trees do show up in the photographs. So we know that the trees were planted sometime between 1969 and 1954. Uh, there's another interesting place you can look to for information about trees in Edmonton, and there is the, that is an app called um, Open Tree Map. And if you look at um, the sub section in, inside that for Yeg tree map, there are actually individual entries for most of the trees in Edmonton on streets and boulevards. So you can actually click, if you go into it, just download the, the app, open tree map, go to Yeg tree map, and then try to zoom in on the map to this block. There are individual entries for the trees on this block. They do call them American elms, but unfortunately nobody's entered information on when they were planted yet. Um, so that would be some of the places you could look for information about that. Okay, so we're gonna look at some more trees. I want you to walk uh, like half a block farther with me that way. Hi, Judy, you wanna say? Yeah. Hi, how long did you live in the neighborhood? Grew up in Hazeldean. Yeah. It, um, my parents moved there in 54, yeah. so I was two. Okay. So I lived, and then moving in and out around the city, but came back to Ritchie like last year. Oh, did you? <laughs> I was out in Millwoods for 20 years. Really? What yeah. brought you back to Ritchie? Oh, just wanted to sold her house. Oh, yeah. Just wanted to go home again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you remember them planting the trees? Yeah. 
Oh yeah. Yeah. I guess it would. I can't remember how old I was, so that's the only thing. And then my my dad was such an avid tree waterer. Yeah. Our tree grew like. <laughs> it's probably still there. Well. That's and then all these trees around this area all came at the same time because yeah. everybody wanted them to be like White Avenue trees. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. I'll let you pass these around so you can distinguish between the leaves. Basically, again, if you see a kind of a vase-shaped tree in the city on a street, it's probably one of these two. Green ash, oak. What bugs or are elm. we oh. dealing with? <laughs> bugs, bugs are we dealing with in the curling now? What's in there? Good question. I'm not going to answer it because this was all a clever ruse. I actually led you half a block down because the other way that you could answer a question, of course, is to ask someone who's on this street. So we're about to meet Judy Borse. <laughs> and at this point, we were all standing in front of a house, and I left everybody on the sidewalk while I ran up to the front door. Hi. Whoa! Everybody say hi, Judy. Hi. Okay, so this is our group of walkers who are curious about Richie. We're doing a, a little Let's Find Out history walk around the neighborhood. So come on in. I can thank hear you. you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> I was gonna come back and get it, but that's appreciate that. Sure. Just don't sit in the wet spots. I mean, boiling ants. <laughs> okay, so obviously you could ask people on the street. So yesterday I spent some time knocking on some doors. And found me. Um, and Judy um, not only remembers the, the rough time range that the trees were planted, but she also remembers the cattle escape from Gaynor's. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Born and raised, I mostly lived in this house all my life, and I'm 65, so that kind of gives you an idea. So I've seen a house slide down 76 Hill. Yep. Do you remember that? Yep. I was trying to remember. I think it was in the 70s, wasn't it? I think that last time. Yeah. Are you two known to one another? I don't. Did you go to Richie? Yes. How well, so? I'm older than you. I'm 70. So oh, yeah. I'm, I, we're a different we're a different generation. <laughs> when there's five kids per every family. Yeah, there was. And I remember the cattle and the fire and the railroad tracks yeah. going through. Yeah. And you used to go, oh, we used to walk down a dirt path and follow the railroad tracks to Mill Creek Pool for 25 cents and go swimming. Can you tell us what you remember about the day of this big fire at Gaynor's when the cattle escaped? What, is, what do you remember about that day? Well, I mostly remember, I, I, I must have been about 12, I think, and we were standing watching and the cattle, they, it was on fire and they didn't know what to do with the cattle. So they opened the, they actually opened the padlocks in the, and the gates and let them loose down in the ravine trying to save them because otherwise they would have just fried right there. So they opened them up and there's this rush of cattle going down into the ravine. And then for, oh, I bet you two weeks after they were looking for cattle down there. <laughs> but, and they knew how many were in the padlock, you know, so they had, well, let's say 30 of them would rush down there. And a lot of them were destroyed because they were half burnt and it was really sad. And there was big warnings not to go down there. Of course, as a kid, that's the first place you're going to go. You can't go, okay. <laughs> you know, and you'd head down there for sure. And what was the exact date? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. No. Was it around uh, 1969? Yeah, it would be in the 60s. I found a picture. Oh, Did good. you? Oh. Yeah. Oh, 
It was really something. So this picture was in the Edmonton Journal. Uh, it was called Survivor of the Gainers Fire. And you can see the one cow down there and the huge plumes of smoke behind it. Yeah, there wasn't a lot that survived. It's almost the exact, it's June 9th dated. June 9th, 1969 is okay. the date for this photograph. Does that yeah. seem right, the one yeah. you're remembering? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I didn't know what I had when I got all these Edmonton Journal records, um, but it turns out that I did find a photograph of the day you were talking about. So Yeah, uh, that was something. Carol, uh, yes, somebody else remembers the cattle escaping from Gainers. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, they let them go, they didn't escape. They did open the gates and let them go to try to save them. And maybe they saved some, I don't know, I don't remember that or not. But I know they killed a lot down there. All right. Um, and again, when we were trying to look at the time range for those um, elm, 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 Oh, you elm said trees. oak yesterday. I know. I always mix that up. Oh, no, they're elm. Yeah, elm. <laughs> uh, those elm trees, we, we narrowed it down to between 1954 and 1969. And your memory of the time range is? Oh, it'd be in the 60s. 60s. Yeah. yeah. So Carol's in the, in the right. 50s, the, all, there was no grass here. These were all potatoes. Everybody planted potatoes in their front yard because it was it's a really clay soil. And by planting potatoes, it enriches the soil, apparently. And so there was no there was no boulevard trees or anything in those days. Yeah. All right. Round of applause for Judy. Thank you. Very much. Any questions? It's a nice neighborhood. I'm moving, though. <laughs> I know. We're, we bought a house at Glenifer Lake um, on the golf course. So this this is a really desirable neighborhood. So we put a little hokey sign out on a Saturday and Monday, a rich Italian, true story, with cash, came by and bought the place. Okay. I'm gonna draw the formal walk to a close now. I sense that lots of people have lots of stuff to share with one another, that's great. Um, Judy will kick you off your, her lawn when she feels that it's time. Um, uh, but before we wrap up today, I just wanted to say a bunch of thank yous. First of all, thank you to all of you for coming out on the walk. This was really fun, I appreciate all of your time. So round of applause for you guys. It's all age groups, it was really interesting. Yeah, cool, eh? Yeah. Um, thank you to Morgana Folkman and Carol Kallenberg for their questions for this episode. Um, thank you to Sam Power, our new assistant on the podcast. The producer. <laughs> Yay! This is, the, this is the first episode we're working on together, so it's pretty exciting. Uh, Crispin Wood with the City of Edmonton, Catherine Ivany with the City of Edmonton, Kyla Tischkowski, Robert Geldart, of course. Thank you, Robert. <laughs> Catherine C. Cole, Holly Platt at the... Um, Ar the Edmonton Public School Board Archives. Yeah. Um, Melissa McCarthy and Tim O'Grady at the City of Edmonton Archives. Um, Matt Hunter for taking pictures. Matt, where are you? Thank you. Um, the Edmonton Heritage Council and the Edmonton Historical Board for their support of this podcast. Um, everyone who supported it, um, especially Finn, and that will make sense if you know Finn. Um, our, our music, which you will hear if you listen to our podcast, is uh, made by the very lovely human being, Doug Hoyer. Um, our logo, if you go to our website, you can see our logo, is by Andrea Hergy at Mount Pioneer Design. And if you want to listen to more episodes of the podcast, you can go on to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Overcast, basically anywhere you can find podcasts. We're also at letsfindoutpodcast.com. And if you have questions, you want to send them to us, you can email them to chris 
at Let's Find Out Podcast. Uh, we love getting your questions. Um, so that's it for today. Until next time, keep your questions coming. <laughs>